Welcome to this episode of the RF Industry Icons podcast. I'm Pat Hindle, and I'm here with my co-host, Gary LaRude. And today we're talking with Marty Cooper, inventor of the handheld cellular phone. Welcome, Marty. Thank you for having me, Patrick. So you pioneered so many new inventions in the wireless communications industry. When did you first become interested in radio technologies? It seems like it might have started at a young age. Well, what started at a young age, Patrick, is uh, my intense curiosity about everything. So I, even when I was a, a four or five-year-old, I still remember watching some uh, big guys, eight-year-olds, with a uh, lens burning paper, you know, using the sun. And I was enchanted by that. And so I brought, uh, took a Coke bottle, broke the bottom off, and tried to make a lens out of it. Of course, that didn't work. But uh, I've been taking things apart and putting them together forever. I actually didn't get into radio until I joined uh, Motorola in 1954. So uh, that I was kind of a late cover in that regard, but I made up for it. You certainly did. Uh, if we go back to your college years, you graduated from IIT in uh, 1950 and then went into the U.S. Naval Reserve serving on destroyers and a submarine. What experiences and life lessons did you have during your time in the service that uh, helped you later in life? Well, the service was great for me. First of all, they, they paid for my education. My folks couldn't afford have afforded it, so that was a, a very fortunate thing for me. Uh, but the uh, services helped me grow up. They taught me about responsibility, and they taught me about responding, making decisions quickly and, uh, uh, and responsibly. So uh, I think it was one of the best things that ever happened to me is getting into the Navy. And I was really lucky to get into the uh, submarine force. Uh, they are kind of the, an elite group, also serve the best food in the Navy. So uh, I, if, you, if you get a, an overall theme, uh, Gary, it's, uh, I've been a very lucky guy my whole life. So I think your first job was with Teletype Corporation of Chicago and you made units that provided remote communication services to media outlets. What were those days like? They were terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, you have to learn lessons. A teletype, uh, you guys are much too young to know what a teletype machine is. Do you know I what? I remember that. Uh, you know, it, it is a, a mechanical printer that has a remote capability. Uh, and this company uh, was a part of uh, Western Electric. Western Electric had bought them, uh, and they were unaware of the fact that they were becoming obsolete. They were building mechanical printers in an electronic age, and not only were the, uh, the technology obsolete, but their whole principles of operation were obsolete. They were acting like an old company with the hierarchy, no, uh, no vision, so uh, I only lasted a, a year. I learned a lot of lessons about how not to do things at uh, Teletype. Uh, and I was approached by Motorola. And I cannot tell you, Patrick and Gary, the contrast between those two companies. Because uh, I could illustrate it just with one example. Uh, at Teletype, uh, we all sat at a huge bullpen, like maybe 100, 150 engineers, uh, and at five o'clock in the evening, a bell rang and everybody stood up and walked out. 
And, when I, and I moved to Motorola, and somehow or other, every evening at a quarter to five or, or something like that, somebody would open up a discussion on some interesting engineering subject, and we go home and we finish talking. <laughs> so, you know, they talk about the difference of being engaged and, and having a job. So uh, I, I ended up uh, one year at, at Teletype and, and uh, 29 years at uh, Motorola. It gives you an indication I was pretty happy there. I guess. Well, you, you joined Motorola in 1954, which got you into wireless, as you noted. Um, you got a PhD from IIT in 1957. And of course, Motorola is so legendary for both its innovation as well as the leadership of the company. And while you were at Motorola, you worked on the first portable handheld police radios that were actually introduced in Chicago in 1967. So if you reflect on those early police radios, what did you learn from them that uh, led to the mobile phone? Well, the, uh, what we learned in a whole bunch of stuff, Gary, first of all, that uh, personal communications has got to be from a person to a person. You know, we had been trained for over a hundred years uh, by the phone company. You know, I always, I can't, I can't put quotation marks uh, on a podcast. Uh, but uh, in order to communicate, you had to have a wire, and what a wire does is it connected one place to another. Mm. And what we discovered when uh, Orlando Wilson, who was the chief of police. Uh, of uh, Chicago uh, back in the uh, in the old days, and he told us, you know, I have a problem. I got my uh, policemen out in the field, and the only way they can communicate with the, the uh, uh, dispatcher uh, is with a radio in the car. They're stuck in their cars, and I want the policemen to be among the people. That's who they're serving, and we discovered that uh, we first of all, we created a portable to a radio that a policeman could carry on his body. Uh, we put a microphone on his shoulder. You guys are RF guys, so you will appreciate that. So that when he sat in the car, the antenna was at window height. And then when he got out of the car, he still could keep communicating. And how did we uh, allow for the low power of this thing? We created cells. Now, they, they were not cells of the uh, modern mode where you have, there's handoff between the cells. You didn't need handoff because uh, the uh, police communications, as you guys know, are very short. So uh, the, the policeman doesn't move very far uh, and doesn't move from one cell to another. But otherwise, it was a perfectly uh, uh, reasonable cellular system. And we discovered that the Policemen, first of all, they absolutely resisted this. No policeman wanted to have a carry in. You know, he had his uh, handcuffs, his, his uh, uh, ticket book, uh, a baton. His, his, he had all these things around his waist. They don't want more stuff. Until the first time a policeman got caught in a burglary and he was wounded by the burglar and called for help. And the word got around and there was no resistance anymore. But that is where we discovered that in business and in public safety, that you could not, in a modern system, 
You could not run your business. You could not run a public safety organization without having personal communications. And, and so when the Bell system came along and said, uh, oh, we just invented cellular telephony. And uh, cellular telephony is car telephones. We just wondered where these guys were coming from. They were still in the ancient history. They're still stuck with, with the concept of wires. That's when we took on the Bell System. Uh, the Bell System had uh, two precepts that we absolutely disagreed with. One was that the cellular telephony was car phones. And the second one was, well, they said, you know, this, the market for car phones is not very big. So uh, there's not room for more than one person. We're going to be a monopoly. Well, you know, the, uh, not only were they going to be a monopoly, they wanted to take over the two-way radio business too. And that was a little inimical to our interest. So uh, this little company, where Motorola, the whole of Motorola, Semiconductor and everything else was a billion dollars. Uh, AT&T was the largest company in the world by every measure. And uh, our management stuck their necks out. They bet the company. And we had a, a, a battle from 1969 when AT&T made their proposal to 1983 when the FCC finally made up their minds. Uh, and uh, guess who won? <laughs> I have so much admiration for Bob Galvin, who was the uh, chairman of uh, Motorola at the time, because he really did bet Motorola, the company, on uh, this futuristic thing on a crackpot uh, named Marty Cooper, who uh, uh, persuaded him that, that this was the future of uh, communications. So speaking of business, uh, AT&T Bell Labs was your main competitor. Uh, what were the other bones of contention between you? Was it mainly just that, the philosophy of wired versus wireless? Well, it, it was the philosophy. They, they didn't think that portable phones were practical. And, and uh, of course, they were right. In 1973, they weren't practical. I mean, you know, you're, oh, I can't, your readers can't see this, but I'm showing you the uh, first uh, Dynatech phone, which weighed two and a half pounds. So it was really not a very practical phone. But we had the vision to know that this phone was going to keep shrinking, that it would be smaller, that it would be lighter, that the cost would go down. Uh, but AT&T did not have that vision. They were stuck in a, uh, what the present was rather than thinking about the future. So that really was the biggest vote uh, of contention. And then there was the arrogance of thinking that, that they were the only ones capable of delivering the service because they were still living in the old days. Uh, once again, where you guys are too young to know, remember when you couldn't even uh, buy a telephone. You had to rent the phone from the phone company, and they were the only source. So, uh, and, and I want to make a, a side comment here. Uh, uh, you know, as you must know, I have expressed my opinions about AT and T. This is the old AT and T, by the way, the, the Bell system, not 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 the new wireless carrier. Uh, but Bell Labs was an extraordinary organization then. And I have so much respect for the Bell Labs people. I have friends there who were uh, 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 innovators and uh, who are wonderful people. So I have nothing against uh, Bell Laboratories. I thought it was a, a super organization, uh, but uh, 
I think we have discovered that uh, competition is really great. And monopolies are bad, in case you, there's any doubt in your mind about how I feel about that. And uh, in that regard, uh, I'm so glad that we have competition now. And you can see the results of that competition. People are battling, trying to uh, outdo each other. And, uh, and you know who benefits from that, all of us do. Right. Well, you've told a very humorous story in the past about the first call demonstrating the mobile cellular phone. So we're going to ask you to repeat that story and uh, who you called and what was the reaction at the other end? I'll try not to be boring, Gary, because you, you must know I, I must have told that story 10 million times. And uh, the only one who doesn't find it humorous is the guy that I called. <laughs> but uh, but I, I actually, uh, you know, when I conceived of this very first phone, the whole purpose of, of the conception was to get publicity. We had to do something to buck the bell system. You know, you think about it, the bell system had 200 lobbyists in Washington doing nothing but calling on the, on the FCC. We had three people, Motorola had three people calling on the FCC, the Congress, uh, and anybody else in Washington would pay attention. So we had to get people's attention. And that's when I thought about this idea. Why don't we actually make a cell phone and, and demonstrate it? And we had an arrangement where the, uh, the morning uh, TV show was going to allow us to demonstrate the, the phone. And I got wakened up the morning of April 3rd, 1973, to tell me that we'd been bumped. I have no idea what the, what the event was. But there was more important news than a, than a cell phone, since nobody knew what a cell phone was. Uh, and uh, our PR people scrambled and they found a, an obscure radio station. And I said, OK, I'll, I'll do an interview with somebody, but uh, let's do it out on the streets so people get the real feeling of what it's like to, uh, to have the freedom to be able to talk anywhere. And I'm walking along 56th Street. Uh, in New York, and uh, try to decide who to call. And I pull out my address book that give you a little hint about 1973, my printed address, uh, telephone book. Uh, and I took a chance and I called my counterpart in the Bell system, uh, Dr. Joel Engel, who was running the AT&T cellular program. Amazingly, he answered the phone, wasn't his secretary? And I said, uh, uh, hi, Joel, it's Marty Cooper. He says, hi, Marty. I said, I'm calling you, uh, Joel, from a cell phone, but a real cell phone, a personal, handheld, portable cell phone. You could see I'm not averse to rubbing things in. <laughs> and uh, there was a silence at the uh, other end of the line. I think uh, Joel was gritting his teeth. Uh, he uh, does not remember that phone call, doesn't dispute that we had it, but I don't blame him. So that, that is the, uh, at the, at the time, it didn't seem like a very important call, but it has become historical, mostly because guys like you think it's a funny story. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what were some of the biggest challenges in designing the first mobile cellular phone? And how was the RF front end for us RF guys? You know, what type of devices did you use? How did you configure it with the antenna? 
Well, the, of course, the, the biggest problem, I, I think you know, Patrick, is the miniaturization part. And uh, as an example, uh, we had a thing called the triselector, uh, which, uh, remember, this phone had to be a, a full duplex. I think your, your uh, uh, listeners are all techies, so they know what that means. Uh, two-way radios up to them were all pressed to talk. You, when you push the button, uh, you transmitted. When you let the button go, you could receive. With this phone, you have to talk and listen at the same time. And, I, and you know what a challenge that is. You're dealing with a, a, a watt of RF energy in the transmitter and uh, trillions of a watt of a signal coming in. And you've got to do them both at the same time. Uh, and not only that, you have to do that in a tiny space in a corner of this uh, cell phone. So that was the, the number one challenge. The other one was uh, two-way radios up till that time had uh, two, three, as many as six channels, but that was the most. And we had to put uh, many hundreds of radio channels in. And at this time, the large-scale integrated circuits were just starting to be functional. So we had to uh, create a, uh, a synthesizer that would allow us to create these hundreds of, uh, of radio channels. And of course that had to be subminiaturized. Uh, we had to run this thing at 900 megahertz. At that time, that was unheard of. <laughs> that was but very we, high frequency then. Oh yeah. We had people in Washington uh, from Motorola that were uh, trying to persuade the FCC that 900 megahertz would never be suitable for land mobile radio. It was much too high a frequency. Of course, as you know, we. Uh, are now operating cellular at three gigahertz uh, very effectively. So we had an interesting uh, situation where uh, Motorola people on the one hand were saying that 900 megahertz was much too high and impossible. And other kooks like me were saying, oh, 900 megahertz, no greater. We can do that and, and more. So that was a challenge. So even, even things like the antenna on the uh, phone with uh, nobody had built a portable 900 megahertz. Uh, antenna before, uh, and on and on. The, uh, the guys who did this, first of all, you should know that Motorola stopped uh, all research and developed in, the, in, in these areas and focused with our brightest people on solving these problems. The, uh, my idea of building the phone uh, occurred in November of uh, 1972. Uh, we uh, Interestingly enough, came up with the industrial design, what the phone should look like uh, in December, which is kind of interesting. You know, we'll worry about the technology later. Let's, <laughs> let's worry about what it looks like now. Uh, the guys started really starting work in January, and by the end of March, had a working phone. Wow. Incredible, incredible achievement. The uh, leader of the, the technical team uh, was a guy named Don Linder. I have a patent on the phone itself, but Don had a number of patents on the technologies that we've been talking about. The industrial design uh, was run by a guy named Rudy Krolap, and they had a team of uh, maybe 30 people. Uh, there were teams of people in New York and Washington that had set to set up these uh, base stations. Of course, you can't do a cell phone without a, without a cell site. So uh, it, it was an amazing effort. And there was no holding back. The uh, had 100% support from management. It was uh, a marvelous experience. 
Well, those were certainly heydays for Motorola and for your leadership. You led the uh, paging as well as the cellular businesses. And a lot of RF technology development occurred during that time. I think quartz crystal oscillators, trunked mobile radio, PZO electric components. Um, what enabled all that innovation? And are any of those uh, technology developments stand out to you as most significant? Well, they were all significant, uh, uh, Gary. I, I have to tell you what what uh, what allowed me to do uh, uh, the kinds of things you not me, but everybody at Motorola to do that. And it really started out with the uh, philosophy of the founder. Uh, the founder of uh, Motorola was a guy named Paul Galvin. Uh, Bob Galvin was his uh, uh, was this uh, good friend of mine and son, and his son and I. And I still uh, deal with the uh, Galvin families. Uh, you know, I, as you mentioned before, I'm a graduate of uh, Illinois Institute of Technology and the uh, uh, chairman of the board of trustees of uh, Illinois Tech is uh, now Mike Galvin, who's Bob Galvin's uh, son. So back to Paul Galvin. Paul Galvin was an entrepreneur, not a technical guy, but he was willing to take chances, try things out, and he was willing to fail. And that is the most important attribute of, of an entrepreneur. And, and engraved at a, at a plaque in Motorola's uh, main entrance was a picture of uh, uh, Paul Galvin, or a sculpture of Paul Galvin, uh, and the statement, do not fear failure, reach out. And I took that seriously. And I, I have to tell you guys that I had my share of failures, but I also had the opportunity to try all kinds of things. Uh, and enough of them worked. So the company tolerated me for 29 years. Uh, and it was the best experience of my life. Reach out. Do not fear failure. Yeah, it seems like that's a key to success. It's the only way you really get revolutionary uh, change. So uh, well done. It's good philosophy to live by. So uh, you left Motorola and founded your own company. I think it was Dyna LLC, or was that Cellular Business Systems? And what led you to do that? I really enjoyed Motorola. Uh, I had gone at, uh, uh, in Motorola as far as a guy living could go. You know, I'm uh, not a political guy. Uh, I, I, it took me a long time to figure it out, but I'm a, the world's worst executive. Uh, you, you know, I, I, Andrew Carnegie once said that the sign of a good executive is when he comes in in the morning uh, and he does the hardest things first. And of course, you might guess that what I did when I came in the morning is work on the things that were fun and uh, never got around to the uh, minor details like shipments and profits and things of that nature. So uh, uh, the Motorola treated me uh, exceptionally well. I had the, the fourth nicest office in the corporation, uh, but uh, I met a wonderful woman uh, who is smarter than I am and is a better executive than I am. And we've been hooked up uh, uh, ever since, and we've been starting companies uh, uh, ever since then. And, and I've had the freedom to do what I feel like doing all the time. So as you, uh, your listeners can't see me here, of course, I noticed you got a, you're trying to emulate me with your beard, uh, uh, Gary, uh, but I'm uh, uh, 93 years old 
I have retired at least a half a dozen times <laughs> and, uh, and managed to find new careers. I'm uh, working very hard on my uh, next one because my last one uh, was uh, writing a book uh, which uh, you have neglected to mention, so I'll make up for that. <laughs> but uh, uh, I wrote a book called Cutting the Cord that describes the process of, of how the uh, creation of that first cell phone was not a eureka moment. It really was an entire career, just one step after another. It was almost predestined. And I also spent a lot of time on, on the book in the book talking about what the future is because I believe that the cellular telephony is still in its early days, still an infant industry. Uh, we don't even know what a cell phone ought to look like. Uh, if you don't mind my rambling, you know, I always buy the latest cell phone uh, just so I can see what it's like. So I bought a, uh, a, a Z Fold uh, phone from uh, AT&T which is a marvelous piece of hardware and the most ridiculous uh, software that I've ever run into. You know, you're now, the Fold phone opens up and uh, it starts out looking like an ordinary cell phone. You open it up and it, it becomes a pad. It's just amazing. And when you buy the phone, it has at least three or 400 icons on it. So, you know, the idea being, well, you can customize this phone to your own desire. All you have to do is go out on the web and select about 2 million apps, which, which are the ones that are going to be suitable for you. So it, it is kind of a ridiculous phone. So uh, in my book, I describe what I think a, a real cell phone ought to be, how the cell phone is going to evolve. Uh, it is going to be uh, an augment to your personality. It's going to do things better uh, than it can do than you would do and leave your mind uh, available to the creative things in life and the important things. Uh, the configuration is going to change. So I'm not going to go into detail because then nobody will ever buy my book. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out my next career. But let me, if, I, if I'm not intruding on your uh, time, I. Uh, one of the issues that I'm uh, aggressively facing now is the fact that the, uh, you cannot get an education today hmm. without having access to the Internet all the time. Not just broadband, but wireless broadband. And 40% of the students, give or take something, in the United States do not have access to wireless broadband for one reason or another. Either they live in a rural area where there's no coverage or they can't afford it. Uh, and that is uh, terrible. They, we talk about a thing called the digital divide. Can you imagine having a culture where 60% uh, of the people uh, get a, uh, a modern education and the other 40% are left behind? That's just unacceptable. Uh, and I think besides that, uh, uh, healthcare in the future will be impossible without you being connected. You having sensors on your body that are measuring your uh, uh, vitals continuously, having computers analyzing you uh, and solving your problems in real time. Not when you happen to take an annual examination, which is totally worthless <laughs> uh, because uh, they're catching you at one 
uh, point in time when you may be perfectly healthy and dying the next moment. So uh, I'm working very hard on the uh, this whole concept of the digital divide and that the carriers do have a responsibility. Carriers meaning, and I think you know who I'm talking about, AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, uh, that they have a responsibility to cover all of the United States, not just uh, highly dense areas. And I could go on and on and talk to you about 5G, which I think is very important in the future, but it's not the first priority. The first priority is getting coverage to people that they can afford. So I'd like to uh, touch base on a couple of dots, kind of connect a dot. You started out saying that one of the key concepts that Motorola pushed was going from place to place to the idea of person to person. And I think possibly when you became CEO of Arraycom, you made another conceptual shift of actually connecting the person to the internet. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's certainly a precursor to this vision that you're describing of us being connected all the time. Well, with, uh, Gary, what you just did was the introduction to the next podcast that you guys are going to do, <laughs> because uh, you opened up uh, an extraordinarily important area, and that is the one of radio spectrum. Uh, the essence of what a Raycom did was uh, to come up with technology that proved that there is an infinite capacity of the radio spectrum. If you listen to the uh, amateurs, they say, oh, there's a scarcity of spectrum. And the FCC uh, goes through great uh, uh, efforts to, to divvy up the spectrum, get pieces here. And yet, since Marconi uh, commercialized radio over 100 years ago, there has never been a scarcity of spectrum. Every time we want to do something new, whether it's radio, television, uh, cell phones, television, there's always been enough radio spectrum because the technology has always stayed ahead. And the, the uh, essence of how you solve this problem is you don't waste the spectrum. You just think about how a radio works today. You put an antenna up, the antenna radiates in all directions, almost all of the energy. I mean, all, virtually everything is wasted. There's got to be a way, and there is, of, of directing the energy from the, uh, the uh, transmitter to the person you're talking to. And, and that's the technology that Arecom did. That technology is now called the MIMO, multiple input, multiple output. Uh, and, and it is the essence of how we're going to solve that problem in the rural areas but guess what the carriers are doing now? They're uh, defining 5G as millimeter wave. And uh, where is millimeter wave useful? Well, in a super high dense areas. In the middle of New York, you can put up a, a millimeter wave uh, base station, which will transmit about 300 feet. Uh, and they use this MIMO technology to force the radio energy through walls because it, at these frequencies, the millimeter wave frequencies, it's really hard to get energy uh, through a wall. And so uh, they're solving this 
a huge problem uh, that nobody has. <laughs> there, there, I, when was the last time you had a latency problem, Gary? Well, well, you know, as I said before, what people want is uh, is uh, quality service uh, at a uh, low price. So uh, there are lots of reasons to have 5G, uh, but uh, the priorities are, are messed up, and I'm hoping that I can get the story across that uh, let's get our students and get healthcare done and, and collaboration. Those are the priorities. And uh, that's what we're doing now is collaborating, by the way, in case you didn't notice that. <laughs> sorry, sorry for all my babbling. No, that's true. Almost everybody we've talked to on our industry icon series has always emphasized, you know, there's a lot of problems with education. There's access problems. Uh, there's a lack of people going into engineering. Um, they've all had some type of concern around this area. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it's definitely an area that we want to explore more. I mean, when 5G first came out, it was supposed to be very low frequency for wide coverage in rural areas, uh, you know, medium frequency for the kind of uh, city type applications, a millimeter wave for the very dense populated areas. It, but it seems like we've kind of lost it. I think the sexy thing is to talk about millimeter waves because it's new and it's high frequency. And that messaging has gotten, you know, too much pulled to that end and not enough to the overall layering of how 5G would give people access. Um, so are you, are you working with any companies or foundations doing that? Oh, you find out, uh, especially Gary will find out that when you got a white beard, not many people pay attention to you. So <laughs> fortunately, there are a few people that do pay attention. And I, I kind of nag them and hope that I can uh, get the story across. But, uh, but Patrick, you expressed this extraordinarily well. Uh, people have to remember that the purpose of technology is the application of science to make products and services that make people's lives better. Mm. And, and if the, you leave the people part out, if you just go for sexy, as you expressed <laughs> before, you're not serving the public. You're not uh, doing uh, what, what is uh, the intent of, of uh, technology. And so maybe we can end with, uh, where can people get your book? Oh, uh, you can get my book from Amazon, uh, your neighborhood bookstore, and whatever. And uh, my age, uh, I, I'm only going to write one book. So there are a lot of different things in the book. Don't expect this to be a, a, a read where everything in the book is useful to you. But if you want some uh, fun subjects about what the future of cellular telephony is, I hope that your uh, listeners will go out and uh, grab a copy. And by the way, it's, a, it's available, Kindle, hard copy, Audible. <laughs> the other you way. name it, yeah, like everything these days. <laughs> Do I sound like a pitchman or not? <laughs> well, that's a, it's a book worth pitching for sure. Well, we could take this uh, conversation in many different directions and uh, a lot of topics that you've raised that would be fun to explore. But unfortunately, I think we're out of time. So I'm going to take away a couple things from this episode, this conversation. One, your, your concept of reach for failure, but then the other, that at 93, you're going strong. And uh, I think the other message is don't stop, keep going. 
Lee, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. It's uh, really been great to have this time together. You guys are great moderators. I could not have done nearly as well without you needling me the whole time. So <laughs> thank, thank you for the opportunity. Well, you are indeed an RF industry icon, and we're privileged to have you uh, on this podcast. And for our listeners, we invite you to check out our other podcasts and also listen for future episodes of RF industry icons. You'll find all the podcasts at podcast.microwavejournal.com. Thanks for listening.